Hi, I'm Jason. I'm Paul. And this is the Hi-Fi Sci-Fi Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 2, Where Silence Has Lease. Jean-Luc, Jordy Specs, Mysteries on the Holodex, Asteroids, Triple Droids, Telepathic Betazoids, Transporter, Deadly Claw, Visitor from L.A. Law, Photons, No Kirk, Captain Has Gone Berserk, Shuttlecraft, Council Troy, Dr. Crush's Little Boy, Klingon Rights, Parasites, New Heights, Phaser Fights, Data's Head, Tasha's Dead, Wyke is Hanging by a Thread, Celebration, Transformations, Everyone to Battle Station. And Paul, this is uh, the second episode of season two, and uh, this is the first episode featuring our guest, who is uh, John, John Pemble, joining us uh, today. John, thanks for being on the show. I am incredibly thrilled to be here. You have uh, an interesting take on this episode that I do. I kind of want to jump into here pretty quick um, because you also have some really strong feelings about season one uh, and what, <laughs> like, like the entirety of season one. So um, yeah. <laughs> well, you remember the movie Total Recall where Arnold Schwarzenegger's character gets his mind erased? Yeah. Um, I wish that could happen with season one most of the time. <laughs> and uh, for this episode, the, uh, the, which I think could be the series pilot, I think we have something that kind of in some way atones for the general horrificness and the disorganization of, of season one. So I kind of walked away with this particular episode where Silence has lease as oh my god this should have been the series pilot now it's too slow and not sexy and interesting enough to do that but it really does an amazing job of introducing us to all of the lead characters the situation that the enterprise is in a really mysterious odd one and it promises us that yeah later we're going to go full out and blow things up and have conflicts and go to other weird places but this episode really is is um it's quite remarkable, and I think it's it's something that if you could just like if you find someone that's never seen Next Generation, kind of what the point of the show is, start them with this one and let them move onward. And then every so often, you look at some of those season one things. You know, it was like a late night. I've had too many beers, and uh, <laughs> oh, that's where they came from. Well, that's kind of hmm, hmm. That's pretty so. messed up, but sure, why not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll confess that, like, I had I had never in a in a million years thought of this kind of random episode from season two, which, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this as season two goes on. Season two does a lot to, I feel, right some of the wrongs from season one, but it still has a lot of problems. It's still rooted in um, some politics behind the scenes, and there is the crippling effect of, of the writer's strike that's happening in parallel while this, this season is, is being, um, being produced. But when you said this is effectively, a, it, it serves as a really good relaunch, um, I, I saw your notes, I read through those, and then my last watch through of this episode, I had that in mind as I started it, and it struck me right away that we start with a scene on the bridge, which is just a quick interchange between Picard and I think uh, Troy, right? And and they're talking. Says, no, what are you worried about, Picard Captain? And... What are you worried about? And he's like, I'm worried about both of them. Like who? <laughs> and it's great because you set up mystery. Like, yep. Who are these people? What are they doing? They're asking questions. They're on a ship. 
And he literally says, uh, so I, I think I, I might be paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of there are elements of the Klingon psyche that should best remain under the surface or, or something like that. And we cut right. to he, that he scene. He basically says he doesn't want to know about them. Like he says it in a way that I kind of took as um, almost willful ignorance. So I might have had a different view of this scene. Um, but it almost comes off as like vaguely racist towards Klingons. That like <laughs> they're they're not something we want to know about is the, the vibe I got from Picard. I mean, this whole show has a lot of either intentional or unintentional racism <laughs> going yeah, on. Yeah. <laughs> and this episode is prime for that. And, you know, I didn't even think about that, um, about Worf kind of being a little, or, or Picard being like, uh, we don't want to know about them people, them Klingon people. I don't get it. Because he's, because you know that character isn't that way. But maybe he's, Maybe he is a little bit ignorantly racist uh, about Klingons. But the reason I haven't really thought about it is because throughout the entire series, uh, 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 Worf is kind of the fool. And he's always saying things. And, you know, you've seen that compilation where Worf says something, Picard mm-hmm. goes, mm-hmm. no. And there's, there's a great scene of that here, too, where, yeah, where episode, he goes, yeah. we got to do this. And Picard looks at him and goes, why? You stupid <laughs> fool. You're just it's a like, dumb oh, Klingon. There's a, there's a big mysterious cloud that's about to envelop us. And you, why should we go to Red Alert? Like, Oof, Them people don't know what they're talking like, about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that comes off as really weird too. But again, it's in the keeping with the the Picard Wharf interaction that goes on through the entire series, as you mentioned. It does kind of create that trope, and there's actually there's there's a part of it where um, I I remember actually scoffing aloud when Wharf first decides uh, before they actually get enveloped uh, by by the cloud by by Nigilum, um, where Wharf like kind of shows that he's uncomfortable and when Picard asks him about it all of a sudden he very uncharacteristically of Worf just kind of like clams up he's like nah, I don't want to talk about it and then Picard makes this big gesture to be like no the bridge works best when we talk about what's on yeah. our minds and then he says what's on his mind and Picard immediately dismisses it <laughs> yeah. just move he, right it's along. also let's be clear that this is not a universe this is he says like oh well there's a klingon legend about like a thing in space that looks like this that devours ships yeah now if you're talking about like here on earth like somebody says that in your office okay that's kind of weird but this creature is not outside of things that they have already run into like this is not a rare occurrence in in the star trek universe well but they do set it up as i think this version of it uh they do say the opposite right like they actually have um there's an interchange between uh picard Riker, and data when data is you know like kind of offering uh theories and suppositions and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he's being super vague about it and um, the reaction is, well, that's you know hardly scientific. And data's like, you know, the beginning of, of scientific wisdom yeah. is, I don't know. The most elementary and valuable statement in science, the beginning of wisdom is, I do not know. I do not know what that is, sir. That's my, my favorite quote of the episode and, and maybe of the series to this point. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's a good quote. And it, I think that does do a nice job of framing that, like, yeah, spatial anomalies are a dime a dozen in Star Trek, right? I mean, like, that's we could list off tons of episodes that that use some sort of weird thing slash hole slash rupture slash what have you in space. But I thought they did actually a nice job of really framing this one as 
not your run of the mill like anomaly sure. because because they don't know anything about it, and the whole episode right. is about them trying to figure out what is this thing. Yes, and and the nice thing about about a lot of conflict is when you don't completely resolve it and give us a happy ending or a definitive answer to what is this. And this is that's what the show does all the way through. There's nothing completely definitive. It is very alluring. It is very intriguing, and that's what really makes this, I think. Uh, very um, much the epitome of Star Trek, and that is the wonder and the possibilities of what this universe has, and we don't actually understand it. Because any scientist that you talk to, they don't, they, I mean, it's mostly based on, well, we think it's this way, but we're, we're not entirely sure. And I think this really kind of even grounds the show in a, in a little bit of a reality. I, and I realize I just said that about a fake starship, but it uh, it does. It makes me really begin to sink into um, where my level of suspending my disbelief is at. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. And, and and I I want to I want to throw this out there too because um, I love episodes like this where the central focus of Starfleet and and its reason for being is really properly shown. And I feel like everyone's reaction to this situation um, is that of explorers, right? There's this thing out there, and it could be potentially dangerous, and they're being cautious about it, but their primary motivator is, we've never seen anything like that. And in fact, when they all kind of arrive at that conclusion, and right after that that uh, that scene that we were talking about where Data says, I don't know what that is, there's almost a moment where there's like a grin on their face, right? Where where they look at each other and like, sweet, we just found something that nobody's ever found before. Like, let's go check it out. And what I like about this episode in particular is um, the, the central focus of it is their curiosity, which then leads them into the trap, but contrasting against Nagilam's curiosity and how they're different. And, and the morals and the crisis of, of morals and, and, you know, difference between how mortal humans view exploration and, uh, and coexistence and how Nagilam views the universe and his, uh, uh, like, ways of going about understanding it. And I was curious if you guys noticed any of that or, or thought about any of that, because that really struck me the second time I watched through it, where I'm like, really, they're both kind of doing the same thing. They're just going about it in totally different ways. Yeah, I think it it is maybe um, reflected in a lot of other episodes that come up where um, you you could kind of talk about um, the races that want to explore the universe but um, don't have ships or don't use ships, um, but send out other things. Um, you know, the um, why am I forgetting the name of the flute episode? Um, the inner light. The inner light. Wow. Um, yeah, the, the whole idea is, you know, they sent out a probe to, you know, um, to do that sort of stuff. And I feel like there's an episode we've already done or maybe that we'll be doing in season two that has that same premise. And that's why I'm kind of dragging my feet here, but I'm not, I'm not going to remember it. But I, th this does come up a, a decent amount that there are other beings out there that are curious. Um, and some of them could, are just jerks about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and some of them want to assimilate you into their culture, like the Borg, like super jerk. Right. Um, That's the biggest. But of the, the thing is that that science fiction. Here's what we need in a science fiction show. At at some point, we need for virtually no reason glowing laser phaser blow up things and ships conflicting with each other at some point. Right. We absolutely, positively have to have that, or your science fiction show sucks. But 
in this one, we don't really have any of that. I mean, we have a, a Romulan ship that comes out of nowhere that's fake and they blow up, but whatever. Uh, this this really gives you have to have motivation for conflict. You have to have motivation for curiosity, uh, and you have to have motivation in order to be interested in these characters. And in almost every minute of this episode, every time one of our lead characters is on the screen, we are learning just enough about them in progress without some big origin story to be interested in how are they going to handle some other thing. And you would know that if you're seeing a science fiction show that this ship is going to blow some other ship up later for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be amazing because now you understand the depth and dynamic of these characters. You understand that they are explorers, but when they're pushed up against the wall, mm -mm, you're going down, bitch. <laughs> I said it, bitch. <laughs> That's it. the I I think I think what delights me so much is that um I I do I like this episode, but it is it does have problems. But what I like about it is that John, you've you've come in really swinging. That you're like you're actually really enthusiastic about about this episode, and I do like the idea that this is a stronger pilot than pretty much anything else that we've seen up to this point. Because if you compare this episode against uh, the actual pilot, and we've, you know, we've already talked about that, there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. But I, I would argue that the only difference is really, like, the runtime. Like, I think they mm -hmm. accomplished the same amount of stuff in 45 minutes that they took two hours to do in the pilot. So as slow as this episode can feel in times, I think that makes the, the original pilot feel even slower. Like, oh, yeah. The, there's obviously, <laughs> there's better episodes of Star Trek, but this one at least is paced a little bit better than some of the worst of season one. Yeah, well, and I don't want to get into, like, talking about Encounter Four Point, but that's an origin story where we have to see every single person, how they came into this world, you know? And which is, which is you have to kind of do that for TV. And certainly... At, at this point in the 80s when they're relaunching the whole show right. they kind of they couldn't have come up with something as as cerebral as this like this would have been a huge risk to run out as a pilot but oh, yeah. now looking back you know a couple decades later you can actually say that i mean you know knowing something later is always better when you see the whole collection and, and you can kind of reorient things which I think is one of the purposes of this show so i, I i'm glad to come out swinging strong in favor of like start the entire series of tng with this one it's even good despite the fact that they have are you ready for this dr pulaski <laughs> a, a lightning rod <laughs> a lightning rod of controversy and uh i uh, but it still works even with this character she's still fine yeah. it, that could have been crusher but she's not there's nothing wrong with Pulaski in this episode, of course, oh, other than the fact that she's incredibly oh, racist uh, but, uh, towards Andrew. Oh, let's yeah, get into Pulaski. A... <laughs> let's get into Pulaski. I mean, there's a lot to dig into here. There's a lot to dig into. I Where mean, you want to start, Paul? Come at me. Let's leave the Pulaski. Let's set that off to the side because that's going to be a... You know, no. We could bury that no, one. No, uh, no. Uh-uh. No. We're going to do that right here, right okay, now. Fine. We yeah, need to Pulaski, get into Pulaski. Pulaski says that she is she insults Data a whole bunch. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then the excuse she uses is... Oh, I like I'm I'm not used to working with like non-humans. It's like, well, if you're things. only used to working with humans, then why wouldn't you treat him like a human? Well, it's even worse. She I, says she I, actually she, like the way that she refers to data. She is going yeah, out like of her non -living way. Living something. Yeah, a non-living device. And then she yeah. corrects herself again. Like the thing about Pulaski is, I actually kind of like the idea of Pulaski in theory, um, <clears throat> which is yes. almost. Yeah, I agree. It's because she's almost do, pulling off that same like 
old country doctor kind of feel where she's she's uh, obviously older than a lot of the members of the crew. She has a lot of experience. Um, you know, she brings kind of this this grounded worldly sense to the show. But someone, and I'm not sure whom, but someone decided that in order to make her character stand out, they would make her just be the biggest dick, really, in the world to one of the most beloved characters of well, the, to the in the show yeah. to this point. And, and part of it, I think, is that you had McCoy and Kirk, and, and McCoy gives Kirk a lot of crap. In the original series, right? That's, well, McCoy gives specifically their... McCoy gives Spock a lot of crap. Like, yeah. I mean, well, he... he gives them both, but there's yeah. a dynamic there between those three, certainly. Yeah, and, and McCoy it, really it... does say some racist things if you think about it. But it's more his personality. They kind of make that clear. It's like it's but... not all Vulcans, just you, right? Yeah, yep. And yep. it's also between three um, strong characters who are who kind of handle their own with him, um, and. Now you'd put Data into that, and and Data, in a large way, is painted as a child in the first season, and and mm-hmm. in all rights, he is a child, um, in a lot of of ways, and certainly in in handling social criticism, he's he's very much painted as a, a child, um, and so now you have a character who comes in and isn't just insulting someone, right? If she was insulting Picard, I think we'd let it go, but insulting someone who basically can't stand up for themselves or even understand that they need to. Um, yeah, just I mean, you said it—a lightning rod. For and it's reality. Each. It's it's what I like because there's always somebody that's like that around there, and it <laughs> makes this show that's otherwise incredibly optimistic and cotton candy. It gives it that that um, that kind of a unsettling feeling, and you need that. Keep in mind, I'm a huge fan of the Battlestar Galactica thing, with, which was nothing but like misery to watch. It makes you feel terrible at the end of every oh, episode. Yeah. Right. So when you watch a little Star Trek, it's like, oh, this is just too nice. So seeing Pulaski coming in, particularly in this episode, and just being uh, a racist dick <laughs> towards androids, and she does it later uh, in other oh shows, yeah, it's actually episode, good because that could happen. And 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 honestly, Next Generation throughout the second season, actually the whole series, but particularly this season, they really deal with that particular topic head on, particularly with Major of a Man. And, sh- and basically they just say, you know, androids are people too. Yeah. 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 And, and they needed somebody to ha- to be doing that. Um, but they really needed it to be a character like, um, was it Kowalski in the, um, Kowalski or Kaczynski, Kaczynski or something like that? Yeah. Um, in um, where no one has gone before where he comes in and he's a jerk and then he leaves. And, <laughs> and everybody's like, well, glad he's gone. Um, it, having them stick around then that just sticks with them. And even when you have a scene where she's not being a jerk, um, she's still just not somebody you'd really want to hang out with that much. And that's why this show needs that kind of a character, because everyone else is just too damn nice. Worf is angry, but not anyone specifically, but because my culture makes me angry. Data's a child. (laughs) He never gets angry, but he could if he had emotions. And everybody else, uh, you know, they don't really have any big problems that are worth note. Yeah, Worf needs a Romulan around that would have made it interesting oh oh god yes the i i think though i appreciate where you're at uh john with that where like it does add some some much needed conflict because i i do think that a lot of the problems with trek up to this point have been um i I think the show got a little bit into its own theories about what the future is like we have no money anymore exactly yeah Yeah. and and you take those things away I, i mean you take all those things away. You take away what it is to be human, which is essentially that even though in the 24th century there is this ideal that, you know, society has figured out, um, 
we still uh, we still need differences that put us into conflict with one another because that's just kind of what happens. And 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 without that, effective storytelling is really driven off of conflict. And and without conflict, it just gets boring. And I think that's where and you that's have... why the first season sucks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I don't think the fix is to bring in Pulaski because well, I mean, I. I don't think the fix is how they handled Pulaski, I should say, because her her observations about data just they don't come off as like reasonable like differences of worldview. They come off as her just taking shots like, yeah, they're, they're always hyperbole. She's a racist. D- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't think I, I think if you sat down with the person who uh, like wrote that, though, I don't think they would say like, well, I wanted to make her a racist. D- like, right. Like, I don't think they would say. I don't say, know. I don't know. Uh, maybe. But I, 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 I should say, you know, it, it might have been before we started. But, John, you mentioned that um, the whole first season was basically us just complaining about how bad season one was. I yeah. feel like all of season two is going to be us complaining about how much we hate Pulaski. Because <laughs> it's going to come not, up every Not episode. on the shows that I'm on, bucko. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll bring in, uh, if, if no other guest star will make an impassioned plea for Dr. Pulaski, we'll keep John in reserve and we'll bring him back every so often to, to interject that balance because... Oh. Damn it, Pulaski matters. <laughs> yeah, even if you need like five minutes, like, well, he's not our guest, but this is a Pulaski scene, and we're bringing in our Pulaski expert, uh, John Pemble, defend Pulaski. Now, by the way, I can't do it all the time, but I am not. I don't hate this character. I would like to talk oh. about uh, some of her physical acting in this uh, because there's two instances of oh, characters yeah. having to like just. Uh, show some real supernatural quasi you know what energy field kind of stuff um one of them is is diana moldauer uh playing dr pulaski when when she gets i I don't know what was happening to her there was she actually like it was kind of uncomfortable because she's physically being moved and he's like oh she's a woman and i'm like wait what the heck is going on here like that's a little weird uh yeah it it felt like he had you know could basically pick up objects or people and move them around or and kill them for no apparent reason by boiling their blood which they do i mean this whole bridge scene from pulaski being yanked with this force yank or whatever it is (laughs) to the to the incredibly graphic death of the uh uh, red shirt yeah uh haskell you exist and then you cease to exist your minds call it death If ever there was an extra who rose to the occasion in terms of, listen, we want you to die horribly, but it has to come entirely from your physical performance. Pretend yeah. he's identified f- by the alien first. Like he goes through and he, he names him Jordy. Yeah. And then he goes, Haskell. And you know he's going, I'm going to kill this guy. Yeah, it's like I've never <laughs> seen that because. guy before. He's probably going to die. <laughs> and it is so, it, it's so good. It's so good. I've never forgotten. I saw this episode when it was new in a hotel room in, 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 when I was away. And the, it really like, oh, my God, this show is is going dark. <laughs> it's awesome. I think I think the thing that put it over the top for me was that obviously, I mean, like he's like he's screaming in pain. They, the thing that I think is, is very effective about it is 
there's not a scene where Pulaski says exactly what they did to him. It's just he's dead. You know, like he's yeah. he's clearly whatever it was, it was awful. Uh, and it happened like that. But I think the thing that was most effective about his performance was in the end, he not only curled up in the fetal position, but he clasped both of his hands together into a like double handed fist and put that into his mouth. And I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, my God, that's horrifying. Like it, it, it actually I mean, there, there were no special effects. There were I mean, it was literally just how it was choreographed and how it was acted. And from that whole scene, I was like, this guy's this thing is terrible. We have to get out of here. Like, I'm uncomfortable. Let's leave. <laughs> And like it's clear the whole crew is like the same way they're like uh we got to get out of here like now um and i thought that did such a nice job to really kind of catapult it into that into that resolution because i really think that like haskell's performance there and then nagilam's immediate response of like listen here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna kill about eh, a third maybe, maybe a, a half, half. <laughs> maybe a half yeah. <laughs> maybe a half of your crew uh, no big deal. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get to work. Like that's cool, right? Like that all stuff together sells the idea. Really, I think of of blowing the ship up because if you think about it objectively, um, they even have that conversation, right? Like, why are we gonna kill everybody when we really only lose half of the people? But knowing what happened to Haskell, knowing what he's probably gonna do, being able to see that, I think really catapults that to like, nope, it's better to just blow up the ship. Let's just get right up into this topic of blowing the ship up. Um, we all know that when the crew activates self-destruct, uh, that's bullshit. That's not going to happen. Right. It's never going to happen. But in this particular case, you, it's okay. You, you know, because you know it's not going to happen because it's the first, you know, episode of the season or the second episode. But it's actually a motivated method of uh, uh, of, in, of putting in this this usually dumb ploy that that comes up how how often does this come up in the entire series like a lot right a lot well, we've, we've already two, two times. times they did it twice in season one and i would like to point out is this is the first time that they've put in the self-destruct and been able to customize the time yeah uh because yeah. they even made that a plot device in the first yeah, season was an upgrade when, you know when they were like yeah exactly you know and like after like one minute or something no command can stop it and in like within five seconds goes ah nah okay don't do it yeah Turn uh, off. Turn, computer, turn off. Yeah. You know, wouldn't it have been great if, I mean, the writer's strike was either, ha it was already happening, right? It was, uh, writer's strike was 88 into 89. and It this... was projected to happen. We all okay, knew so it was this coming. Was on it was... the horizon, okay. Yep. Yep. I mean, that would have been an interesting, like, if they had just blown up the ship and then been like, nope, series over, writer's strike. <laughs> 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 well, we would have had another all new crew. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Whenever you need to push yourself creatively. Um, you need to take something away, right? And the way that you overcome that deficiency is usually a way that you can redefine your skill or, or how you can do something. And I think that the sparsity of this season, which had all kinds of production problems that lingered from season one, um, the likelihood that there was going to be a strike and the likelihood that they may not have enough money to do things, I think that actually helped this particular episode and others down the road in TNG when they just didn't have the money to do a big blowout uh, episode. They had to actually think. They had to actually make content that was, was um, at the core very compelling. They had time, not money. And uh, I think this is a really good example of what happens when, for whatever reason, you take something away and you go, 
all right, you got to be creative as hell on this one. Mm-hmm. And and uh, they, they nailed it. This, this isn't necessarily the best episode of the entire series, by the way, but it's it's awfully, uh, they do a lot. They do about as much with as little as possible in this. Yeah, so much so that even some of the stuff that they do um, with the scenes where Riker and Worf are beaming over to the USS Yamato, I mean, clearly that's just a, they're using existing sets, but the way it's lit is is really creative. The way that they're mm-hmm. using practical effects to show that, like, I mean, even the scene, I thought this was, like, a really kind of super neat thing, but, like, you don't have to do anything to do this. They, they're on the turbo lift. They expect to get out on, like, deck four or something, and they get out on the bridge, and they're just like, <laughs> the bridge should be four decks above us. Like, what's going on? Yeah, that costs you zero dollars. That costs you, like, as much dollars as it is to shoot any scene, right? Like, you just have to pay it's a crew great. and camera. But immediately you're like, what is going on on this ship? Like, that's messed up. You yeah. Know? Yeah, the stuff on the the quote unquote Yamato, um, I think was some of the strongest in the episode. Yep, easily, hands down. E- even just Worf starting to lose it about the f- fact that there's two bridges, <laughs> like, and he got he it, got claustrophobic because what he yeah. got. I mean, he like any like even even a big tough being can be claustrophobic like uh-huh. anybody else, and that's what's happening. He's well, freaking and a out. A lot of psychological terror there. Like it, yeah. it's not just the scary face in a cloud. It's this where are we what's going on why are there two bridges how could we ever get out of this place and for Worf, i mean you know he's always portrayed as the dumb klingon who just wants to physically take something down he's forced now to deal with something mentally which is Mm kind of not the first way that a klingon is portrayed to think they like to get down and shoot this or hit it or yeah it's not going to solve this one use your batness Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. No batleths there. Just just you, two bridges, and your mind. Two bridges. There's one bridge. There's <laughs> one ah, bridge. I've got to open this door. <laughs> oh, at ease, at ease, Lieutenant. At ease. Yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> fuck you up on the holodeck. Oh, that line. But that's what he wants. He's he's just asking because he wants to put Riker. He's like, I'm gonna fuck kill you if we weren't. If you are no other man, I kill you where you stand. Anyway. <laughs> the uh, um. The thing that that I think is um, that is really cool about all of these elements individually, each of these elements would be kind of neat, right? Like the the mystery behind what what's this ship? Why does none of it make sense? Um, you know, John, you even uh, provided some sound for this show about uh, them trying to chart this this expanse, which again is nothing. Like right, like their sensors show right. it as nothing. They can't chart how far it is, how long it is. Like they drop that buoy, they move away from the buoy. You can hear it falling off because they're tracking it, and then you can hear it get stronger. The beacon is in place, sir. Dead ahead, impulse power. The beacon is falling astern, Captain. Engineering, report. All systems functioning normally, sir. Prepare to increase to warp two. Aye, sir. Captain, we are receiving a signal from dead ahead. Have you found the door out of this? Closing on the new signal, sir. Identify. Captain, it is the stationary beacon we just released. You must have come full circle, sir. We couldn't have, sir. I've shown us moving steadily away from that beacon. Full stop. Hold this position again.
because you as the audience are able to figure it out before the crew does. You go, oh my God, they're going back to where they were. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. sound, just that dull, it is, it's, it is one of my favorite sounds, uh, uses of sound in the entire series. It, would, um, it portrays motion, it portrays unsettling, it portrays curiosity. I mean, it's everything that you want. It's that just bing, pinging beacon out there that, oh man, I love it. Sorry, I can't stop talking, but I love it! <laughs> well, and it's great well, in, so, uh, in in our line of work, uh, you know, we deal with audio, and TV sometimes notoriously doesn't do so good with, with the audio. So when you see a nice moment that, that uses purely just some audio to sell this this idea... I think it makes it a stronger idea. Um, it, it just it connects the audience to it, and and I think this whole thing, like every element of this and the creepiness of this, I think is really brought home when the characters realize. And again, to to your point, John, I think the audience gets there before even the characters do on this point too, which is when Pulaski says like rats in a maze, and they figure out they're literally just in. Nagilam's lab like whatever this place is it's effectively his laboratory and he is just doing stimulus responses on them they're they're nothing more important to him than just some interesting test subjects that he's like what what happens when they when I do this to him what happens when I do this to him and, I think and the I think best that's... thing is it actually it actually forces uh, forces Picard later when he's talking to fake data and and fake Troy another really creepy scene cuz you start to realize that it's not them before Picard does you right. go like that's not them yeah uh, but when when Picard lays out his belief system in in like 30 seconds um I'm like you know what that is now my belief system he <laughs> lays it all he he answers the meaning of life in 30 seconds and it could appeal to the most spiritual person or an atheist how great is that scene Considering the marvelous complexity of the universe, its clockwork perfection, its balances of this against that, matter, energy, gravitation, time, dimension, I believe that our existence must be more than either of these philosophies. That what we are goes beyond Euclidean or other practical measuring systems, and that our existence is part of a reality beyond what we understand now as reality. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and it's his response to it is, uh, you know, when Data says, you know, what is death? Oh, is that all? And then immediately then like goes into it and you're like, oh, wait, that is kind of death. Whoa, <laughs> way to go, John Luke. Like, holy crap. And it's I think it's such a Star Trek answer because it is. It's you're right. It's inclusive. It's um, you know, it's not an atheist view of the universe and it's not a spiritualist view of the universe. It's open-mindedness. It's and we really don't know what in, happens. Right, and they're very careful in Star Trek to not, you know, you don't see crosses and the mention of Jesus, you know, like some of the Earth spiritual beliefs on there. But they don't go out of their way to say those are wrong. Because they're explorers, you kind of assume that, well, they know these belief systems of the Earthlings, and it gives us more time to concentrate on the spiritual beliefs of aliens as yeah. the show goes on. Yep. And uh, I, I really like that. Um, it's just it's a very, very inclusive way of looking at things that just it can't possibly annoy anybody, no matter what their uh, religious, spiritual beliefs may be. 
Yeah. Well, it's a perfect infinite diversity and in, in infinite combinations kind of thing, right? Like it's, you know, this is how they view it. This is how people view it. The, the truth is we don't know. Well, you know, that's the ex that's the experience. That's what we're all here to find out. And he says it so beautifully, so eloquently. And then, you know, there it is. And, and that, you know, do you know what the sad part is? What? That that data doesn't even get that answer. Actual data doesn't get that. <laughs> it would have it would have done Picard's him so much good. Repeat it. Yeah, Picard's not going to repeat it to him. He's not going to be like, hey, data, when I was in my chambers, there was a fake you. He asked a good question, so maybe you want to hear it? I don't know. He was, they already said it. They already came up with it. It's kind of on the in the moment then, but, you know, it's still good for you, huh? Yeah, now I'm sad. Oh, oh well. And But apparently that answer was, by extension, so good that it satisfied Nagilam because, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, the the mystery cloud disappears. You can he literally that cool scene where Picard's looking out his window. And I think they even established before it was, you know, that cloud of, of nothingness. And then he looks out again and it's a star field and they're in open space. And there's a great sound cue in here too, where you just hear this whoosh, and that's their transitions, like all these weird sound effects, these low-end rumbles that are in the right place when Nagilam talks, yep. and there's a change outside of the ship, just a whoosh, and man, it works. You know, while we're talking about sound and, and that scene specifically, this is um, one of the rare places where um, kind of a um, the, the music tastes I have that are vaguely weird at times uh, gets to play out, but the music that is playing behind Picard during that scene uh, is actually um, from a, uh, I guess, 19th slash 20th century um, neoclassical. Eric Gymnopedie yeah. is an yep. impressionist. And that's yeah. I, exactly. Uh, and that also kind of like gives you the clue, like, well, this is French music and, and Picard uh -huh. is French. I mean, it's, uh, what it's a great it's selection. such a good selection there. Yes. And it's like, and, and you might also recognize it from Minecraft um, because it's one of the main themes that Minecraft uses since it's in the public domain. Oh, really? I did not know oh, yeah. that. Wow. Yeah. Well, and also all that in French Impressionist music, by the way, is often um, commonly played at funerals, and it's the most on, on a piano. And mm -hmm. it's, it is mm -hmm. well, some of the most piano, amazing yeah. music very... that you will ever hear oh, in so your good. life. Nice. It makes all the sense. So, yeah, I'm, Paul, I'm glad you picked up on that because I, I, I thought I, it was just me. Nope, I, I have a, the record here with it on it that maybe I'll send some uh, <laughs> to, to Burns to play at the end or something. But, yes. Yeah, roll some of that off if uh, if you can, because that would be uh, that would be fantastic. So, th I mean, th this episode again, we've we've talked a, we've talked a lot of positive about it. It it is it does have some issues of pacing. Um, I think I think in the front half of the episode, it's a little slow in parts, um, but in the tail half of the episode, I think it makes up for for that. And you know, really though, I would also like to say that I think that the pacing is intentional because they're trying to to piece this out slowly, and they're trying to build the mystery. So they're not revealing the the Nagila until something like what thirty minutes or something like that into it. Yeah, we're yeah, way it's, past it's, the halfway mark before we see him. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because it, it it has like you mentioned, it has a lot of parallels to other episodes. Um, I, I think the the pilot is a fair one, um, largely because of the you know, all powerful creature that's kind of playing with them. Um, but skin of evil, uh, the same way it's this sort of feels like skin of evil part two. Now you can't fly away. Um, <laughs> that, like that, that this, hold this on a minute. I'm processing that skin of evil. Now you can, that's, that's epic. That should be a, a t-shirt, man. Wow. Man. <laughs> we, you damn it. Now you're going to make me want to watch one of the season one episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's basically the same idea. And in, in skin of evil, it's much more, okay, this thing is just pure, um, actually diluted, concentrated evil, not diluted, distilled, concentrated evil. Um, 
and and Nagilim is less pure evil, but still certainly evil, um, or yeah. at least unfeeling. He's more intelligent. He's more dynamic than than the black oil slick that kills Tasha Yar. Well, if you yeah. want to use a uh, a gaming parlance for uh, for D and D nerds out there, uh, you oh, know, <clears throat> one is probably chaotic evil. If we're talking about Armus, where yeah, you know Nagilum is probably lawful evil slash neutral evil. Yeah. I mean, somewhere in that spectrum, he's not chaotic. He has a plan. He holds to some methodology. Uh, it's not our methodology or laws. So I would say lawful evil probably. Um, so I mean, there, there's a difference, but they are both in the yeah. same vein. Exactly. And Picard even says, you know, it's cool if we meet again, but let's meet on our terms. Okay? Right. I mean, yeah. he doesn't, he gets it. He gets Starbucks. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and part of it is, just, just to kind of go back a little bit to the, the end, um, Nagilam gives a great little 45-second monologue to Picard where, you know, Picard says, you know, um, you could have watched us die. And then Nagilam kind of dresses him down and goes, you know, you guys aren't all that great. You guys, you guys think you're wonderful, but you have some serious faults, man. And that's kind of a theme that, that happens in Next Generation all the way through. But I like it here because it's at a slow, great pace. It's mostly a voice thing because the, the, the face effect of Nagilam is terrible. Right. But they overcome it with an insanely great story and a wonderful voice actor. And it's just, I just love listening to that scene where it just says, you guys are savages. Basically, Nagilam is saying... Don't act like your shit don't stink. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's largely to tie it back to the pilot. I mean, that's in more you know, more or less words, that's what Q's saying. Yeah. Right? Do you think Ron Moore and the writers uh, talked about, you know, the aliens and go, Hey, do you think we can do another episode where the foe says don't act like your shit don't stink? Do you think do you think that was actually a pitch that went around? Yeah. I think it is. I wonder if uh, if somebody looked back on on the original pilot and the ideas that they wanted to get across and went, you know, that didn't work out so hot. Let's try that again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we get uh, this episode because they do cover a lot of the same central themes, right? That humanity uh, has obviously progressed, but probably not progressed as far as as they think they have. And it's uh, <clears throat> both of them are a little bit of servings of humble pie for for the Federation and for humanity, where it's like, you know, listen. You guys are all right, but but I mean, you're still kind of freaking savages, man. Like, just get it together. And your, and your doctor's a racist dick about androids. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so are half the people in Starfleet, but they hide their racism about androids a hell lot better. Yeah, and we'll deal with that in a few episodes. Yeah, a few so, episodes. You know, yeah, exactly. Let, let me let me bring up something that's a little disappointing. More going forward, but it's it's kind of funny. Um, I, the poor USS Yamato, the sister ship to the Enterprise, we see it you know, a facsimile of it here. And it gives us this sense of like, oh my God, the Federation looks great. There's more like galaxy class ships out there and we're going to get to see them. That's really cool. Um, now this is completely like, uh, as you watch the show, this wouldn't bother you, but um, the, sh the ship <laughs> is given the incorrect designation. It is the NCC 1305E, according to this episode. And later... They reveal that no, 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 no. It's it's uh, NCC seven one eight zero seven. But then it says NCC seven one eight zero six when it blows up. Spoiler alert. Later. Um, what I like about this particular episode with the Yamato is we see the promise of more interaction with captains. What I hate what happens later is uh, we're just going to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it actually 
because we see the Yamato again. We see that exact ship again. Um, it shows up in uh, in an episode um, in season two. Contagion. Contagion. Yep. Oh. Um, but another one of the great ones of season two, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Yeah. But you're right. They never do make good on that promise. They will eventually in an entirely different series when we get to see exactly how large the Starfleet is. But it will take us probably another almost 10 years to get there uh, before they make good on the scale of the 24th century, which is what does a giant, you know, peacekeeping, but a giant peacekeeping space armada look like? Um, and we, we do see that when the Federation goes to war. But you're right. That is... That is a little disappointing here, where throughout the course of TNG, we just never quite get a chance to see that scale. No, although they do a little bit in the best of both worlds when they they show how many ships got blown up. Exactly. Yep. They do give you a sense for that. Yep. Um, But again, sometimes less is more. The promise of something is great. And, you know, they could have used the Yamato a whole lot more, even if even if it was just a little bit, just the idea, just the idea that that there's another ship just like this out there. And occasionally we're going to partner up with them. Yep. Yeah. High five, best friends. Now let's go take on a mission. Woo! Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. So um, we have covered uh, quite a lot uh, on this episode. Uh, if there's anything super pressing that people want to get to, we'll get to I that. Have, I, have, I have one more thing. Unless, one, John, you got anything else? Oh, I want you to go, Paul. Okay, because <laughs> I think it's... it's I, we should just have a segment like Paul's Physics Minute, but um, it's about minute. the fact that Data uses parsecs, and I'm not sure why. It kind of stood out to me, right? Did they ever really talk about parsecs beyond this? Because they usually use light years, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I could see if if a parsec were a smaller unit of distance, but it's not. So a parsec is about three and a quarter light years. So there's no reason to use it for greater fidelity of a distance. Um, and it also has nothing to do with the kind of distance that they would experience. Um, so parsecs have to do with um, the parallax distance, um, uh, observed parallax of near stars to far stars, right? So stationary planets at certain distances, that's what parsecs are used for. So data using it here really feels kind of weird. Wow. And that's it. There's, there's your physics for today. But, <laughs> yeah, no, uh... but no one noticed, Paul. Good, good, good one. <laughs> we've, we've got, uh, you know, other podcasts have Neil deGrasse Tyson. We, uh, we yeah, sp- why don't you be a guest on his, Paul? Like, no one cares about that here. <laughs> well, I feel, I, I feel like if I sneak in a little bit of physics, like, once every five episodes for, like, 30 seconds, maybe you'll remember that. that no, no, no. Nope. Parsec, sir. Nope. <laughs> really only on, uh, if you're on a planet orbiting a star at 1 AU. So really I mean, if, if you really want to get to this whole really thing. Just for and- Earth. This is a constant thing about the physics of Star Trek. It's like the idea that you could just show up on any of these planets and breathe and not have your skin explode or pass out, which would be more likely the case. Like, I mean, the, the one thing that I liked about Babylon 5 was they dealt with the difference between atmospheres and different mm-hmm. uh, species and races and whatever. So um, the moment that they beam down to a planet with absolutely no trouble whatsoever, um, I, I stopped worrying about parsecs <laughs> yeah. i'm just saying it's a fair I, you know, point you're not, yeah. i mean you, you have a good point it's you, just that nobody cares paul you did yeah. however <laughs> inspire me to to launch my side project <laughs> which is a podcast about babylon 5 which is also one of the great science fiction series uh of wait a minute time. are you really launching a podcast about babylon 5 i i mean no but i would love to because i absolutely love that show <laughs> um, wait a minute wait a minute hold on you liked babylon 5 i i own the entire series on uh on dvd yep 
Oh, you should have said oh, laser disc. Jesus. That would make you a fan. Yeah. Oh it's... my God, we're gonna go round and round. I would, I would, I would, uh, I would do the pilot with you if you want on that, and and just. Oh my God, I hated that show. I loved the idea. Loved the idea. <laughs> really? Loved really? the idea. I, I Girl, think. Loved, loved it. It's, hated uh... its execution. <laughs> that's another time. That's another conversation. And that's that why destroy our friendship if we do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather talk about par sex with Paul than. Babylon 5 with you. Oh, goodness. goodness. And that means we've clearly arrived at our com- at the end of our conversation about where silence has leads. Um, are, we at a, are, we, are, we, are we recommending this? Are you recommending it? I mean, how's this, how's this, how's this shake out? So now we get an up or down vote. We've, we've kind of all made our case for it, but essentially, yeah, this thesis statement of the podcast, which is uh, we want to also select episodes. We want to add episodes to our watch list that we should recommend to people who are new to Star Trek. So is this one on the essential wa- watch list for each of us, up or down? And John, since you're our guest, you go first. I, I put it two thumbs up, it, it fists in the air, um, and, and, and like I, I will, I will uh, like really... Him, like, just don't care. Yeah, I do. I, 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 can't, I can't believe that it took me till this year, however to realize how great this episode was because a lot of season two, you're kind of like, well, it's better than season one. But then when you start to watch, it's like, you know, it's not that bad. It's Mm -hmm. really overall not that bad and it gets better. So anyway, I think this is definitely the one to, uh, to, to, to put in, in, in the watch list. And it should be the first show that a non TNG person watches in my point of view. Nice. Nice. Paul, what say you? So I, I sort of went into this one um, thinking that it was kind of a boring episode that um, that I wasn't really super excited about. But I think you've made some good points um, on this being really, I mean, a mulligan probably is a good way to say it. A mulligan of some of the poor episodes of, of season one. This is still a flawed episode. I don't love this episode. There's problems, but none of them are bad enough. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think I think there's a watch. Yeah, I I was very mediocre on this episode in memory, but I think this is one of those episodes that when you watch it, it's because of its place in the universe, it's easy to forget uh, some of the particulars of it. But when you watch it, it's just a really solid episode of Trek and it's a very nice character piece. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's a very, very true to Star Trek episode. So, yeah, for all the reasons above, I think this one gets a uh, a three out of three uh, for the recommendation. And that you have three thumbs. I have three thumbs, um, which is also <laughs> part of the experimentation uh, process. But uh, I'm sure one of them will get burned off horribly, and then I'll clutch my head and fall over, and, and that's that. So uh, hopefully, John, you enjoyed your uh, conversation with us, and thanks for thanks for being on the show. Well, hopefully you'll, you'll let me come back. Oh, yeah. Will I come back? Can I come oh, yeah. back? You can come back. Do you have anything else you want to plug, John? Or? No. Nothing? Your presence oh. on the internet, st- stupid stuff you put on Twitter, uh, things that yeah. you're particularly proud of, anything like that, or or save that for a future encounter. It, just just search into my name, and you'll just find great pictures of my cat. I mean, that's all I care about is my cat at this point. So well, there you and go. Star yeah. Trek and Star yeah, Wars at this point. Of your cat. Yes, you know. So yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, thanks again, and um, we'll be back next time with uh, Elementary Dear Data. Until then, I'm Jason. And I'm Paul. And always remember to hold that self-destruct until the very last second, and then when you're trying to cancel it, say the world's longest sentence, just like Riker did. We'll see you next time. Abort. Auto-destruct sequence. Riker William T., do you concur? Yes, absolutely. I do indeed concur wholeheartedly. Auto-destruct. Cancel. 
He should have he said... Don't use Prytex. He should have said, Tantric, baby. <laughs> <laughs> then that's... I don't know. Simple yes would have sufficed, number one. 